Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. As an entrepreneur or solopreneur, you may be accustomed to making sure your team is taken care of before taking care of yourself. It's normal. I see it a lot, especially in some interviews. Now, building trust, culture, and hosting intentional meetings is just as, if not more important, than hitting sales metrics. In this episode, we talk about burnout. Yeah, burnout. Today's guest is Jennifer Moss. She's award-winning journalist and author, international speaker, and workplace culture strategist. Let's jump into this one. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts. I'm your host, Tristan, and today I've got Jennifer Moss. Welcome all the way from Toronto, or close to Toronto, I'm sorry, close to Toronto. Jennifer, how are you? I'm excellent. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. It's going to be great. Me too, because, man, I hear about burnout from so many different entrepreneurs at every level, starting from the top all the way down to the bottom. This is something we can all relate with. And I know that we've all had a challenge with this. Some of us are still having challenges with this. So I want to start in a place that you and I just talked about this. And you said, you know, we hear that. It's up to us to just take it and beat the burnout because we have to take that responsibility. But you're saying, look, that that's part of it, but it doesn't end there. There's a lot more to this and it's complicated and we really need a team to take this down. Where do we start with that? You know, and I love that you mentioned entrepreneurs because my uh, experience with burnout started as an entrepreneur, as a founder, co-founder of a tech startup. And, you know, that one of the things that I came to realize is that entrepreneurs specifically are very bad at taking their own advice and sort of following the, <laughs> their own <laughs> mantras and rules. You know, we're really good at telling our staff that we're going to take care of them and, you know, we're, we're feeding ourselves last. And I think, you know, that is a, a sort of a, a micro example of how uh, we as entrepreneurs are sort of behaving um, constantly in our own lives. You know, we are bad at self-care. We're bad at managing our own stress and preventing our own stress. And yet we should be modeling the behaviors, especially if we're leading a team, we can't be asking them to take those vacations and not answer emails or to, you know, take the breaks that they need in the day, not eat lunch at their desks, um, making sure that you're, you know, you're modeling the behavior as a leader is the only way that we're going to make institutional changes. And, you know, when the World Health Organization actually defined burnout as an occupational phenomenon, it's workplace stress left unmanaged, they, they made this announcement in 2019. And it was a result of the WHO and the ILO doing this mega study that went over several years and they found that overwork is responsible for the death of 750,000 people every year. And yes, and it's catastrophic. And so we need to be taking this term burnout more seriously. And we kind of shrug it off like, oh, it's okay. I can burn out. I love my job. You know, and when you love what you do, you never work a day in your life and which is not true. And entrepreneurs <laughs> have that, you know, they have that mindset. Like I love my job. And so I can just keep working unsustainably until I have a heart attack. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's what we need to be doing is just, reminding people that this is a very serious problem that you should not feel, you know, ashamed or stigmatized or think that it's just a whiny work-life balance, you know, problem that it's real and, and we need to be addressing it in a real way. Where do we start with addressing it? Is it, is it in fact, when they defined it and said, Hey, this is the definition. Now that you're aware, let's take it on and go to the next step. Or where do we start? Yeah, first labeling it and and taking it more seriously is is a big first step. And I think this last couple of years in the pandemic has shown how impactful it is. And if anything, it's shown, you know, leaders that it's a bottom line issue. So, you know, even if they are 
just really great citizens and all leaders are just caring about their staff. Oh, you know, that's a wonderful thing. And, and I'd love to see more of that, that human centered leadership. But when it became a bottom line issue and we're seeing this massive attrition and, you know, 47 million U.S. workers left the workforce in one calendar year, that's yeah. waking people up. And so I just, you know, recognizing it and addressing it and also seeing it as a business case, if, if that's what you need to do. Um, but having conversations about it and normalizing those conversations in the workplace is one of the most important things that we can do and, and talk about our own burnout stories. I mean, so, um, you know, so many physicians that's, they're the most, you know, healthcare is maybe the most hard hit with burnout. And it's, it's like a shameful word to talk about burnout. It's, it's, it has so much power because there is an expectation that you are doing work for the good of people. You, you're, stakeholders or patients, it's life or death situations. And so this idea of, you know, taking time for yourself is really difficult to do. You feel selfish. And so again, all of this, these conversations to normalize it helps people to put their hand up and say, I think I'm feeling the symptoms of chronic stress or, or potentially burning out. All right. I'm taking notes here because I've interviewed a few people here through the success podcast. And one of those that's coming to mind is, I don't know if you know, uh, are you familiar with P90X? Do you remember P90X? It was like a workout. Yes. All right. I yeah. interviewed Tony Horton. Yeah. And and you just reminded me of, of him because you said that we have to take time for ourselves and that's important. But we live in a culture that where it's just like, no, if you if you love what you do, then you, you keep on going. It doesn't matter. And he was doing that. And he said, Tristan, I... I burned out and I got sick. I got super, super sick. And I thought I was going to live with the sickness for, for the rest of my life. Cause he's 60 ish now. Um, but he said, what I learned from that is I got this little journal and I started writing the things that I enjoy doing. And I needed to take a lot more breaks to just do what I love, but that's only half the story. I want to hear the rest from you because you're saying, there's more to that. If we really want to conquer this and, and get in tune as to how to actually help ourselves and others, it's a team effort. What does that team effort look like? Is it Does it come from the work side? Does it come from institutions? Where? Where do we find this? Well, it's all nudges from every direction. And I think, you know, we mentioned policy needs to change for sure, but we also need employers to be talking about it and putting policies in place. But we as individuals play a role too. I mean, you know, certain personalities are at more risk of burnout. Perfectionists, you know, highly driven people tend to, you know, not want to stop. And we also, one of the kind of bad habits that came out of the pandemic is that we have just been living in a really strong sense of urgency, which made sense at the beginning. But I think we're still in this emergency state. We're still in, in this like chronic need to be toxically, you know, productive and it's not healthy. We need to pause too and say, is this really important? Do I need to answer this email right now? Do I need to be in this threat of emergency all the time? And because we're in that state of fight or flight from being in this massive you know, global crisis, and then also new cycles have gotten much more difficult for people. I mean, it just feels like there's threats everywhere. So our brain and our body are actually behaving like everything is a threat. And that means that ping that we get from an email late at night drives cortisol through our body. Our reactions constantly to other people's needs feel our brain is actually responding to it like it's a threat. And our our body is getting tired from that. It's increasing our brain fog and, and our sense of, you know, volatility and a, we're not emotionally regulated. And so all of those things do come on us to take pauses, you know, in my interview with Dr. Marie Ansberg, who is the, maybe in the one part of the world, Sweden, she's based out of Stockholm where they actually have like real sort of 
parameters around burnout and they considered a medical condition. You know, the WHO actually added burnout to its international classification of diseases, but it went as far as saying it's a syndrome, not a medical condition, but in Sweden they do. And Dr. Marie Asberg said, you know, what we all do is we live all the way out to our margins. Like, you know, normal papers have these margins that are free. Like you, you know, they're nice blank spots. So if you need to fill something in or make edits, you can write in them and add things in. What we do is we literally write to the edge of our pages. We do. And, and we have no room. So you want to fix something, you have a stress, you want something to, you know, ad lib, you're, you're dealing with something which is very much like how life is all the time where there's sudden interruptions to our best laid plans. We don't know what to do. And so we're just falling off the pages all the time. And and I love that image because I so see that in our lives. So we as individuals do need to create space for that. And it takes work. It takes blocking time off your calendar to get heads down time. It's, you know, making decisions about when you stop working and, and be clear about that. And, say, I'm not going to be, you know, I expected to answer a client request at midnight. I just am not going to do that. And if my workplace doesn't understand that, which a lot of people are saying, then I leave. And, and having that control back, I think for us as individuals is forcing leaders now to respond in kind and create a lot of, you know, programming that actually does support more upstream interventions, more burnout prevention strategies than what we were seeing before, which is just sort of letting people fall in the river and pulling them out after they drown and then sending them right back upstream again. That's true. Uh, you know, we, we were seeing that a lot and we're still seeing that in places. How important is, does culture, the culture of the company play into, into burnout? Culture is really everything. And I think, you know, that's what I I tried to make clear in the book is we, you know, we need trust as fundamental uh, to any sort of relationship. And in workplaces, it's even more significant. And I would say, you know, our social contract with work and our jobs has changed a lot. It used to be transactional. You know, you go into work you do a job, then you would get paid, you go home, you know, kind of like Fred Flintstone, you like grabbed your, you know, (laughs) your lunchbox and slid off the dinosaur. And then you're, you know, on your way to to home, there was no thinking about work. Mm -hmm. But when technology came in and created this always on culture where you could be accessed in your home and, and there became this sort of invasion of our personal lives, people started to say, well, if you're expected, you're thinking that, you know, you can come into my world, now that social contract has to change. You need to protect me. You need to care about me. You need to prevent this stress from feeding into my personal life. And so all of that, then, then the demands and the expectations changed. And, you know, we want as leaders, we want our teams to be productive and successful and hit those metrics. But now we're saying that you know, that loyalty isn't, is only going to extend so far because they are asking of us to do way more to make sure that they're remaining engaged and, um, and well. And so that really, I think has been the major shift is now we're in this situation where, we want you to care about us. <laughs> you know, it used to be, don't be in our business. Now it's like, you need to be empathetic. You need to have conversations yeah. with me about your life. You need to be vulnerable and I'm going to be vulnerable and we're going to have psychological safety because that's really what matters. And that trust piece, the culture is what is foundational to that. And that's why that relationship has to be two ways because you cannot build trust with someone that is not reciprocal, you know, reciprocating that relationship with you. Do you, do you see that four day work weeks? Because I'm starting to see that, but do you see that that's actually a benefit towards, towards curing or helping with burnout? You know, I think that we're really inefficient and we've been inefficient for a very long time. I mean, meeting fatigue was a a time suck, a time waster for a very long time pre pandemic. And here we are, you know, Microsoft 
the Microsoft Trends Report 2022 just released their data and we've increased just Teams meetings by 252% in the last year. And so that is unbelievable. We don't need to be collaborating that much. We need to be thinking about just how much we're wasting on um, on inefficient tasks and, and time theft is a big one. You know, we need to be better about deciding who's going to be in the meeting, how long the meeting is going to be. We need to sit. if you're a host and you haven't thought this through, then, you know, there should be, um, you know, re repercussions to that. We look, Lululemon is a great example. And I was early days with them on ha their happiness strategy. And, one of the things that they talked about was time theft. And, you know, you did not go over meetings. There was a real etiquette around it because they looked at, you know, yoga pants and shrinkage just much of a strategic, you know, objective as not stealing human resources, which are very expensive. And so they started to look at, you know, the, the over meeting as currency and how much they were drawing from the opportunity to be more productive on other things. And right now we're just thinking, okay, well, let's, you know, let's invite everyone to a meeting because we don't want to get anyone to, you know, we don't want anyone to feel bad that they weren't invited. We're overlooping. We need to set agendas that say, hey, Joe, you can come in from 1230 to 1245 because that's all I need you for. Mm -hmm. We need to be telling people that they don't need to come to meetings and we need to get really good and create permission driven environments or cultures where we can say, I don't think I'm going to add value to this meeting. And I'm so happy you didn't invite me to that meeting. I love you. <laughs> not inviting me to the meeting, you know, changing how we think so about our time. And so what we found in the four day work week, or, you know, it doesn't even have to be four days, it's just 32 hour work week. So you can still work five days, but it's about reducing the time. It's that it's really just a drop in all those things that are are, are really don't matter. And when you look at the data, people are as productive or more productive. They're meeting better goals. They're reducing issues with clients, customer services better in all the data when you work less. Um, and so that's where we really need to, you know, get to is, is figuring out where we're wasting time and just get rid of that, you know, slough. It makes sense. It's like, um, I'm just trying to think of this. It's like you're, you're sprinting, instead of running this really long marathon, you're sprinting and then you have a lot more time to rest. That's exactly it. Yes. And, yeah, and you, you need that. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Cause I, I, I personally hate meetings. So um, yes. I can relate with that. I always feel like Parkinson's law, you take up the time that you have and it's sometimes it's like, why just finish it in 10 minutes if we're done. Right. Yeah. Have a stand up. So people, you know, even on Zoom, have a stand up. And I also think we need to think about, you know, the way that we're collaborating and, you know, asking people to arbitrarily come into the office to sit on more Zoom meetings is not that shouldn't be what hybrid is like the most optimal hybrid is. Having people come in you maybe once or twice a week on the same day, the whole team gathers. So it's not a ghost town. You get to just choose when and where you come in. But there's um, real functional aspects of being back in the office. It, the office is different. Everything's changed. We went from 4% of the global workforce to 35% of the global workforce working remotely within a month. I mean, that adoption is is wild. So we've changed. We have different frames of reference. And so saying just like, oh, well, let's jam the toothpaste back in the tube, send everyone back to the office doing what we're doing is not helpful. We need to think, OK, well, what could we be doing when we're together? How about team building? How about developing, you know, creative thinking? How about we use this time to do work sprints together all in a room? You know, how do we make the hybrid experience about more about productive working relationships, which is one of the things that's really atrophied being remote. It's been a real problem. Loneliness has increased and isolation is increasing. Oh. A lot of your young professionals feel left out because they're not getting this, the right um, time that they need with their peers and their managers. So make this uh, effective and then let everyone work remotely when they're doing things that, you know, are easy to do remote. And, and then that's where meetings then can happen where we're together and we're connected. Mm -hmm. yeah, good point. 
Good point. In your book, by the way, everyone listening in, pick up the book, The Burnout Epidemic. Uh, it's it's out. It's great. I'm I'm a third of the way through. Okay, great. so I'm not finished completely, but I love it so far. In it, there's a chapter or a section in part two of it where you talk about how to measure burnout. Can we can we talk about that? Because I'm not sure it's clear in people's minds because everyone has a different meaning. How do you how do we measure that? Well, there's standard ways of measuring, you know, the Maslow burnout inventory, the areas of work uh, survey, you know, some of these great surveys that Susan Jack, Dr. Susan Jackson, Dr. Michael Leiter and Dr. Um, Christine Maslock, they're sort of the foremost experts. They're retired now, but they've been working in this space for a very long time, sort of before anyone even talked about burnout. They were there talking about it. Um, so you can have those types of measures that you use within in sort of an institutional way. But I'm not a huge fan of looking back surveys because, you know, someone could have been up all night with their, you know, with their uh, baby and they're coming into work and they're exhausted and they're answering about how they feel about work that day. And it is one point in time. So for me, like it's important to get these sort of these broad surveys and then try to match it to what's happening more frequently. And again, pulse surveys are helpful to find out and they can be kind of more frequent um, kind of Q&As making it anonymous is really important so that people can talk about things that otherwise they might feel stigmatized. So you'd get really good answers, but we also have to understand that surveys for a lot of the population, especially our most vulnerable, they're not as keen to answer data like that. And so I think we might end up getting also a very, um, you know, a, a lot of data that's lacking diversity. So what I think is most important is that we have, managers and their teams speaking constantly and frequently about how they're feeling. I say we have to have a non-work related check-in every single week where we're asking people how they are. You're sharing how you are. It's not going to be that everyone is just going to be sitting around and sharing all their intimate details right away. But if you have consistency and frequency and you're asking people kind of very specific questions like name a high, name a low, you know, those types of ways of, of actually asking people what's going on in the week. And then, you know, every week as a team, you say, what can we do to make next week easier? These are things that that allow us frequency and consistency. And also what managers need to understand is that people, when they give you their information, when they trust you to answer a survey or to answer your questions, that in, if you're not going to commit to making the learning actionable, if you're just going to hear it and then nothing changes, then you're going to erode the trust in your culture and your culture really does impact. So you have to, if you're engaging in this process, you have to be willing to take that information and do some things about it, or even just communicate like, okay, we don't budget for that thing, but we can make these, you know, incremental changes. Start with one intervention, like just auditing your meetings and making them sh shorter for the next month and ask your people at the beginning, you know, what's your job satisfaction? How are you feeling? Are you feeling, you know, healthy, burned out or whatever? And then at the end of that, then ask again, you know, did this one month of reducing our meetings make you feel better? I mean, it's very simple. We, we're, it's really just about like a lot of iteration, not being married to your ideas, not massive programmatic changes, just, you know, the, the concept of neuroplasticity where your environment and your behaviors sort of change who you are, become part of your subconscious behaviors. That's what you want to see. And that's where the culture starts to, to fuel it um, and perpetuate it um, in a negative and a positive way. Is that where burnout stems from, that environment that, that you're consistently in? Because you use the word frequency, and I, I know because, you know, I've burned out, of course. And the, the key, the way that I measured it, right, was the frequency of which it kept on coming back. It's like it didn't go away. And I felt like, well, well wait, wait a second. I, I enjoy doing this. What the hell's going on? Mm -hmm. Right. And so that that resonated with me. Does it really stem from the environment? Where does it stem from? 
I love that you asked that question because that is exactly what it is. It's, it's um sort of just these tiny pebbles that over time, you know, they're, they're little pebbles, but like when you're walking around with the rock in your shoe for two years, you know, it will probably cause you a lot of pain, but on those first, you know, first month or week or whatever, the day you don't feel it. It's just an irritation. And so we have chronic stress is really just these small irritants that, and microaggressions is a great example of that, where you can deal with it in these tiny ways over time, but then it becomes uh, so toxic that you can't handle it anymore. And I think that that Mm. is burnout, you know, is, is these tiny microaggressions, these chronic problems, you know, you, you say you put your hand up and you decide you're going to participate in a meeting and you come up with a, a what you think is a good idea and it's not you know no one really gets excited it's, it's not supported maybe you'll try again you know put your hand up next time when you think you have a really good idea but say three times you put your hand up and come up with an idea and want to contribute and your manager still says no you're going to feel like I'm not going to bother putting my hand up anymore. And then that's when you start to disengage. You start to feel less connected to the mission. You Mm -hmm. feel less effective. Mm -hmm. You're not valued anymore. And then you start to do things intentionally where you're, you know, more argumentative at work, you're less helpful. And then you become a detractor. And so these are the things that, again, they're just these tiny cuts And then, uh, you know, and what Dr. Asberg said is that it's like an 18, typically it's an 18 month to two year process of where it's, you know, tiny dips and then you bounce back, but then tiny dips and you sort of go back. But then there's a point where you hit the wall and you don't come back from that really easily. It's 18 months to two years of a process of rehabilitation with cognitive behavioral therapy and potential pharmacological responses. It's a medical condition that has led to potentially um, depression, uh, generalized anxiety. Your body is physically ill. You start to feel stomach aches. You're in more chronic pain. You have more headaches. Like it becomes manifested into a physical experience. And so that's it. Yeah. Sounds like there are different levels to burnout then. Like there's the... There are the initial stages, which which I feel can be helped with with a personal routine. Right. But then it can get worse. Like you're saying, like you're freaking me out here, which is good. All right. <laughs> yes. Now, now you're to the point where like, hey, you know what? Now it's now it's manifesting into something physical. Get ready because you couldn't handle it. Now you need help. That's so true. And, and you know, like you think about that that feeling like if you're in an environment that's causing you chronic stress, you know, how people experience like the stomach ache kind of the night yeah. before on the Sunday night, yep, yep. that is your body saying, I'm really stressed out. You start to feel like it's harder to breathe. You're as Sunday comes along throughout the day, you know, like I remember this one job that I had that was the, and I write about in the book, it was just so stressful. And on Sunday nights, like my whole, my whole body would change. I'd find that I was clenching my jaw when I was sleeping, like these types of the, the sleep wasn't as restful, but your body is telling you that the stress that you're under is no longer sustainable. And we sort of ignore a lot of those symptoms. It's, it's like a mean you know, on Sunday night that you're dreading going into work, but all of that is, is really, you know, not good for us. You have that chronically and you start to feel that on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, you know, stressing about the next day, think about what's happening in your, you know, your body. And so that's why, you know, you can go for a while in this level of, you know, sustaining it, but there is a point where too much of that, too too frequent exhaustion, too frequently we're feeling depleted. And when Christina, like Dr. Maslock and her team, when they kind of came up with how to look for the signs of burnout, there's three major signs. One of them is that exhaustion, high levels of depletion. So sort of waking up in the morning and not feeling like you're rested, very demotivated. Mm -hmm. Um, You feel by the end of the day, you're exhausted. You're not engaging in things like 
wanting to have dinner because you're so tired, just want to eat in front of the TV. We're drinking more alcohol. We're using stimulants in the day to stay awake. You know, all of these things are, are happening and we're looking for that sign. And she actually measures it. The MBI measures it where it's weekly and frequency per week. So some people will have compressed mm-hmm. workloads, right? So you might have, you know, three months, if you're an accountant, there's a certain season, but then, you know, kind of at the end of this, whatever this fiscal, then you're going to be fine. Well, if you feel like this over periods of time where it's two to three times a week, these symptoms, not just of exhaustion, depletion, but sort of emotional distance from your job where you don't feel like you're good at what you do anymore. And and then cynicism, high levels of sort of, you know, uh, hopelessness, feeling that you can't change things. A lot of I words, like I'm never going to feel better and and I'm always going to feel like this. And then the always and never language is really about permanence. So you, when you start to use words like that, it means you don't feel like you can change them. So Mm -hmm. all of these things, again, Mm -hmm. Two or three times a week, if we're kind of giving ourselves a self analysis, we want to kind of watch that. And is it compressed or am I feeling, have I been feeling like this for six months and I don't actually see an end in sight? That's when you really need to start looking at what is, how is this manifesting in my body and my mind? And, and we do need to seek help because a lot of people can't work through this on their own. They need support sometimes it's peer support sometimes it's just a you know good friend but it might need to be a therapist or some you know professional in psychology that's helping you actually work through some of these things um and maybe it's leaving your job it depends how toxic that is and you know if it's actually going to change interesting when you were saying when you were describing the situation where you have the manager and the employee and the employees like giving advice, manager shoots it down one time, shoots it down another time. And then you're like, at that point, the employee's probably like, Hey, you know what? I'm not going to talk. It's just, it's not even making a difference. What I was thinking at that time, it definitely happens at work, but I also see it happen between relationships. Like, burnout in relationships it's like that that almost i've been married for 25 years so you know i've had a lot of ups and downs but we're happy and i could definitely go back to feeling that way at some point it's like well you're shooting me down everything i'm saying i'm not going to say anything right so so relationships you you know and i think that uh, it's I think that the WHO and we've, I've been having lots of conversations actually with my peers about the term burnout and, and the fact that the WHO sort of co-opted it now as a workplace phenomenon, making it the definition. And, and I, everyone's saying, is that really the right word? Because there's so much bias around burnout already, or is this, you know, the, the wrong word, because we need to, have, you know, a word to label our burnout in family life. And, you know, if they've decided it's a workplace phenomena, what about when I'm burning out in my, you know, especially when I was writing a book on burnout and I have three kids and I'm trying to homeschool. <laughs> and like It was so ironic that I was doing that. I felt like, wow, I'm, this is a lot. So, you know, creating that definition in one way was really helpful because it pushed accountability onto institutions and not just onto us as individuals, but there's something missing now from our vocabulary that can define what it feels like, particularly because work and life are so integrated now. There isn't a lot of separation. And so I think that what it does say is those same expectations that we have in a relationship with the people that we care about are similar to what we expect at work. And that's that social contract that we're talking about is, you know, the things that we're experiencing at home, we, we, they're replicated at work and there's not this bifurcation, you know, it's, it's very intermingled. So this idea that we're going to have different expectations of our relationships of people at work that we would in, in our personal lives is it's very murky. And it used to be like, you didn't talk about certain things at work, you know, certain things were taboo. None of that is the way it is anymore. Like people talk politics, they talk everything now in the workplace. And so we've, we've created this like integration that makes it so the expectations across the entire board 
are very similar. And I don't think leaders and especially old school leaders really know what's happened and they don't necessarily know what to do with themselves around this. So true. You watch it all the time. They're like, suck it up. When I was young, right? And I was yeah. like, dude, that's a whole no. different world, bro. <laughs> um, so, I mean, really, like oh, you got to you got to realize, like, I'm sorry, global pandemic changes people. And we faced our mortality for two years. And the idea that you're just going to be like, oh, let's go back to before times. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. And and until people, you know, realize when 40 or 50 percent of their workforce turns over that we can't keep telling people to suck it up, then maybe something will change. Hmm. I wonder how it was during the Depression, like as soon as it happened, it's like the middle of it beginning and because we didn't have social media. So we or the media wasn't around in the same way. How, uh, let's talk about burnout in social media. Does does social media play a big role in burnout or is that a whole different institution? Like we've got the work burnout at the work burnout in relationships, burnout in social media. Where, where does that fit in? I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. Well, I think technology and I, I write quite a bit about that impact on the book, but it played a huge role, just adoption of technology and also the ability to connect at any time emailing each other, those increases in Zoom fatigue. I mean, the Zoom burnout is so real. I mean, this isn't social media, but there's a great, um, there's a great research study that was done by um, Dr. Balenson at a Stanford Media Lab. And I'm not sure if you're familiar, but he talks about Zoom burnout and he talks about the four big signs of burnout from, um, from video conferencing. And he uses zoom cause that was like the, the big, you know, pandemic boom was zoom. Um, but he, he talks, um, it, but you can like extrapolate this across any other video conferencing tool, but he said, first of all, and I won't go through the four, but the first one I thought was really interesting is that we are constantly self-comparing, which is something that happens on social media, but we are also looking at ourselves and nitpicking and seeing our faces and it makes us like you know well my hair looks weird or that lighting's bad or look at that pimple in my face and uh botox is actually framed this as the zoom boom and Botox went up by 90% their sales increased Whoa. by 90% over the pandemic because people are critiquing themselves in Zoom and it's become this this really interesting kind of trickle down economic um, impact from us staring at ourselves. And then another thing that Dr. Balance had said, which I find hilarious, is he said that the only time in real life where we would be this close up to people is if we were fighting them or or mating them or mating with them. So like, you you're with your boss for example and you're like looking at them and it's like do you have a good report if not you're going to want to punch them out if you have a good report does it make you feel too intimate and so he said that we're in a hyper aroused like a subconscious hyper aroused state all day which is making us extremely fatigued so i think you know you have these things that are so strange that we'd never recognize and we're not able to label them but it's the same thing with social media like the amount of adoption and how much we're on we're constantly looking to our phones more than we ever had like the increase in in our phone use and our addiction to the phone is really damaging and on our mental health too we doomsday scroll and we get really into the the media right now and i've been strongly suggesting media diets because there's just too much for us to focus on. And, you know, there's this this great definition between perceptual curiosity and epistemic curiosity. Perceptual curiosity is us just wanting to, to like scratch this itch, right? Like in our brains, we want to get more and more information. I found like in the pandemic, I would go and I'd, you know, look for how many deaths today and 
all day long, I'm seeing the same news and I'm looking for more news, but I just, I want to scratch this intellectual itch so that I feel better. And we do that a lot with the news as we want, we watch it to the point where we're, we're hearing the same thing over and over, but we feel like it's going to eventually just solve all of our problems and we're going to go and it's going to be this really positive news cycle today. And we're not going to hear any more politics or whatever. And that never happens. You know, but epistemic curiosity is about being curious for our own learning and for our own enjoyment, you know, going um, to a museum and which we've stopped doing because we're burned out, spending time having intellectual conversations with people and for no reason, you know, actually talking about books and reading something that's stimulating, changing our kind of news algos so that we look at Scientific America instead of, you know, the cable news network. So these are the things that drive happiness. And these are the things that just continue to make us unwell. Um, and we do a lot of that perceptual curiosity seeking versus epistemic curiosity seeking, which is really good for us, but we don't take time. Again, we, we don't have the margins. So we don't do those things that actually bring us joy. Do you cover that towards the end of the book under leading with curiosity? Is that where I'm going yes, to get to? Okay. which is my favorite chapter in the book I found. I loved writing it. I love the interviews that I had. Really cool interviews with Dr. Martha Bird, and who is the chief anthropologist for ADP. And her work is very oh. cool. Yeah, very cool. The fact that they have a C-level anthropologist, like uh, just the work that she does is very interesting. And she says that we all should be professional eavesdroppers. That's our job, like being curious uh -huh. in, in hearing people's stories, but also listening for the things that excite them, like watching for what makes someone light up and then digging into why they light up about things, you know, we, and, and caring when they say they're fine when we know they're not and, and dig deeper into those mm. parts of their experience and, and look at the semiotics, like what are the symbols that they have at their desk? You know, what are the things that they're the most proud of? And, you know, how do they dress? How do they, you know, how, if you're noticing someone that's really burning out, they start to, you know, be, they demonstrate fatigue by not caring as much about their appearance. They're sort of showing up late. They're, they often are distracted. It's, it's signs of depression. And if we look for those clues, oh. we can, you know, we can start to help in ways that aren't intrusive, you know, how maybe just going and sitting with that person, asking if they want to have lunch with you that day, you know, sending them a joke, whatever that thing is. But if we are professional eavesdroppers, it's like we're actively listening for all those signs of where people are are not sharing. It's like reading between the lines of people's behaviors. And I just think and that's how you're curious. And you're curious by by just really want, like I'm a curious person. I love learning new things. I love it. It's so exciting. And you, I love asking people, like, I have a, a thing. And, and a lot of it is in this next book that I'm writing. I ask Uber drivers, every Uber driver, you know, where they were, you know, what brought them to drive in an Uber. And the mm. stories that you get, especially now out of the pandemic, like I was a lawyer and I burned out and now I'm just taking a pause or I like to travel six months of the year. So I, you know, leave Guatemala, come here for six months and I... <laughs> you know, and I do my driving and then I go back and mm -hmm. live in this really cool way or, you know, so you learn so much about the stories and it's so interesting. And so much of what I've learned mm -hmm. lately is that people have been burned out and they are dri now driving an Uber. It's like the burnout um, kind of um, burnout epidemic has been like the rise of people just going into gig economy, going into something that's not settled um that they have a lot more control and agency over even if it is a stopgap i'm curious to see how many people end up leaving drivers end up leaving uber and what the attrition is but for me it's like ask people stories ask people questions get to know the randomness of the people around you it, it builds uh, your own sense of empathy and discovery and and that is how we should what we should be doing inside of our workplaces you know someone we don't work with all that often just ask like you know why they got into this what is the project that they love working on the most what's inspiring about their work mm -hmm. what do they love about what they do 
You know, what, what makes you feel passionate about being here? And you really start to feed that from people. You feed off of that. That's true. That's very true. I, I wrote down curiosity is the key to getting along. That's what you're, what yeah. you're saying. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and people love it when you go back to what they're most proud of and demonstrate that you've listened to them. Like, you know, I, it's really great to give a compliment, like nice, nice job, like good job. But if you give a compliment, which is just a few extra sentences, but say like, Hey, good job on that presentation that you did a couple of weeks ago. I wanted to let you know that there was these two points that I really thought were interesting and insightful. Mm -hmm. And so I brought that back to my team and I'm like utilizing it. And I just wanted to let you know, like that was really helpful. I mean, the difference between good job, but actually being specific and saying what you took away makes that person immediately like supercharged with healthy chemistry, which is a good thing, but your Mm -hmm. happiness actually lasts this like exponential amount because you've really lit someone up. And so there's this wonderful kind of reciprocal thing happening when you pay attention you know, because we can all tell someone they did a good job, but you're not, you're actually showing them, no, I, I listened to what you had to say and it mattered to me. I love that. I'm taking note of that. What a great hack right there. I like that a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's like compliments 2.0, right? Just make it a little bit more specific and the hmm. feedback is great. I really like that. All right. So how... How do we begin to take care of ourselves? Where, where does that where does that start when it comes to us? We need to be better. I just, I've been telling people to start this frivolous fifteen, and no matter what in your day, take fifteen minutes to do something quote unquote like I say in quotes frivolous because it's not frivolous. It's actually all this really great evidence for why it helps. Yeah. Um, but you know, make it completely guilt-free and make it all about your needs. And that can mean sitting in outside with a cup of coffee and looking up into the trees and doing nothing. It can mean going for a 15 minute walk every single day. I mean, starting your day with a, if you're working remote with a fake commute, you know, walking around, Walking around the block helps you really bifurcate between work and life, Uh, leave your home, Mm. take a walk for 15 minutes and come back and you start work, you know, there. And at the end of the day, separate yourself again by commuting back home, you know, through your neighborhood and you come back and, you know, you change your clothes, changing your clothes, um, delineates that the day is over. We need these primes. It's a psychological term where, you know, you're priming yourself. A lot of people have quotes on walls or, you know, I use a password that makes me feel happy. I, you know, these just little things that, that I try to make sure that I integrate. Um, But these, this prime specifically has shown that if you are so integrated in your home and your life, having separate space is really good, but you can create that space just in your brain by taking these 15 minutes at each end of the day and coming back to home. So everything has been shut down. When you leave for that 15 minute walk, you've turned off all of your stuff, shut the laptop, you've gone for a walk, like you're, and you're still in your work clothes. Um, a lot of people don't change their clothes anymore when they're at work. It's like, um, it's like, what what was the stat? Um, showers are down by 30% in the pandemic and changing our clothes is down by about 20%. Wow. So, so like even just basic hygiene has been shifted, but so we come back and change our clothes and then we're, we're in our home environment and it helps our brain to separate. We also need to be, you know, good about creating margins. That means asking yourself, it, do I need to do this? Do I need to be at this meeting? Do I need to, you know, commit to, uh, to FOMO? Like I Friday night, I'm always really tired. And so is my husband. And we always say, okay, yeah, we'll meet you on Friday. Let's go do dinner. And by Friday, we're always like, oh my gosh, why didn't we make it Saturday? Cause we're, we're so, out. cause we're so wiped out. So, you know, try to, you know, what I've been telling people, and it's kind of like a, a term, the idea of JOMO, you know, the joy of missing out instead of FOMO. And I love that because it can mean let's do something 
before I say yes, let's, let's focus on what is my priority right now? Is it healing? But I also know that friendships are healing for me. How do I do it in a way? Maybe it's a Sunday afternoon walk. Maybe it's like hanging out with the dogs and, you know, going out to have uh, whatever, one hour lunch somewhere instead of let's go out Friday night and have a big dinner and drinks. And then I'm feeling exhausted the next day. They're small hacks, but it needs to be intentional. And a lot of people know what's good for them, but they're really bad at executing on what's good for them. So that's where the, that's really where it's hard is the intentionality of taking care of yourself. The more intentional we are about, uh, about the effort and taking it seriously, like that frivolous 15 is actually quite a serious intentional focus that you're making. And and sort of pat yourself on the back for it versus saying, oh, I'm lazy or I need to get work done or I just need to plow through or, you know, look at it instead of this is a guilty pleasure. Look at it as this is a serious intentional effort that's very hard to do, but it helps me in the long run. And we need a mind shift around that because people won't do things if they think it's just for pleasure seeking, you know, and, and it's not, you know, productive. Instead, we need to look at that as the most productive thing you can do for yourself that day. It's the guilt that gets us as entrepreneurs, right? Every time. Every time we think, Oh, I could just do this one thing. You know, I just is a nickname in this family for me. I just, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to, they call me, I'm just, and cause I do that. Oh, I'm just going to like quickly unload the dishwasher in between meetings. Or I just, I just want to get this, you know, painting up because it's been sitting there. Like everything has to be, every time block has to be filled. Like we need to stop saying, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just all the time, all day long. Instead, it's like, Go outside. I'm just going to sit here for 15 minutes and do nothing. That's what I'm going to just do. Um, but that's hard for a lot of people like us that are extremely production focused, high performing. Um, we we are goal seekers and it makes us feel good to hit our goals. But honestly, the dishes can wait for 15 minutes. They totally can. Jennifer, thanks for being on. Everyone pick up the book, The Burnout Epidemic. And where do we go and follow you and find more of you? You know, the website is a great kind of springboard for all that other stuff. It's jennifer-moss.com. Well, it's easy. It is, yes. <laughs> Jennifer, thanks so much for being on. I really, I really loved our chat. This is really great. Thank you. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.